these remarkable parts. It made sense of the riotous variety of the elements, placing them sequentially in rows by atomic number, that is to say, the number of protons in the nuclei of their atoms, in such a way that their chemical relatedness suddenly leapt out. This relatedness is periodic, as revealed in the alignment of the columns. Mendeleev's table seemed to have a life of its own. For me, it stood as one of the great and unquestionable systems of the world. It explained so much, it seemed so natural, that it must always have been there. It couldn't possibly be the recent invention of modern science, although it was less than a century old when I first saw it. I acknowledged its power as an icon, yet I too began to wonder in my own tentative way what it really meant. The table seemed in some funny way to belittle its own contents— with its relentless logic of sequence and similarity, it made the elements themselves, in their messy materiality, almost superfluous. Indeed, my classroom periodic table provided no picture of what each element looked like. The realization that these ciphers had real substance struck me only at the vast illuminated table of the chemical elements they used to keep at the Science Museum in London. This table had actual specimens. In each rectangle of the already familiar grid, squatted a little glass bubble beneath which a sample of the relevant element glimmered or brooded. There was no knowing whether they were all the real thing, but I noted that the curators had omitted to include many of the rare and radioactive elements, so it seemed safe to assume that the rest were authentic. Here it was vividly clear what we had been told at school, that the gaseous elements were mostly to be found in the top rows of the table, that the metals occupied the centre and left, with the heavier ones in the lower rows, they were mostly grey, although one column, containing copper, silver, and gold, provided a streak of colour. That the non-metals, more variegated in colour and texture, lay over in the top right corner. With that, I had to start my own collection. It would not be easy. A few of the elements are found in their pure state in nature. Usually they are chemically locked up in minerals and ores. So instead... I began to cast about the house, taking advantage of the centuries during which man has extracted them from these ores and pressed them into service. I broke open dead light bulbs and surgically snipped free the tungsten filaments, placing the wriggling wires into a little glass vial. Aluminium came from the kitchen in the form of foil, copper from the garage as electrical wire. A foreign coin that I'd heard was made of nickel, though not an American nickel, which I knew was mostly copper. I cut up into coarse chunks. It was worth more to me like this. It made it more, well, elemental. I discovered that my father had some gold leaf kept from his youth when he used it for decorative lettering. I removed some of it from the drawer where it had lain in darkness for thirty years and allowed it to shine once more. This was a definite improvement on the science museum. I could not only see my specimens up close, but feel whether they were warm or cold to the touch, and heft them in my hand. A bright little ingot of tin, which I had cast in a small ceramic bath from a melted roll of solder, was astonishingly heavy. I could make them ring or rattle against the glass, and appreciate their characteristic timbres. Sulphur had a primrose colour with a slight sparkle, and could be poured and spooned like caster sugar. For me, its beauty was in no way tainted by its slightly pungent odour. I have reminded myself of this smell just now, with a tin of sulphur brought from a garden shop, 
where it is sold to fumigate greenhouses. The dry, woody aroma is on my fingers as I type. To me, not hellish as the Bible teaches, but evocative simply of childhood experimental inquiry. Other elements needed more work. Zinc and carbon came from batteries, zinc from the casing, which serves as one electrode, and carbon from the rod of graphite inside it that provides the other. So did mercury. More expensive, mercury batteries were used to run various electronic gadgets. By the time they had run down, the mercuric oxide that powered them had been reduced to metallic mercury. I chopped off the ends of the batteries with a hacksaw and scooped out the sludge into a flask. By heating the flask, I was able to distill off the metal, watching as tiny glistening droplets condensed from the thick, toxic fumes and then merged into a single, hyperactive silvery bead. The experiment would be banned now for health reasons, as are these batteries.